Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. All right, well, welcome back to church. Who's ready to get into the Word? Awesome. Okay, without further ado, we've been in 1 Corinthians together for a number of weeks now, and I just want to say before we get started that this is all CJ's fault. It's all CJ's fault, all right? Uh, He can't defend himself anymore. He just left to go be with fifth and sixth graders, so I get to blame him for everything, right? You know, three weeks ago, we opened this series, 1 Corinthians, talking about the wisdom of God. Dr. Owens comes in from Nigeria. He's talking to us about, you know, God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. All beautiful, beautiful thoughts. And then CJ has to bring up all these problems, Right? He's like, all right, now we got to get to the hard stuff, okay? I'm going to bring up all these issues that Paul's addressing. I'm just kidding. The problem is that if you're going to look into the Word of God, you're going to see some problems, right? This church that Paul is writing to in 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth, this is a messy letter because it was a messy church. It's a real church. You know, there aren't any perfect churches, nobody's got it all figured out. And Paul, in this moment, is really touching on some pretty big issues, and he's wanting to lovingly point them back to Jesus. So i got to ask you guys, before we even get started today, are we okay with getting into some messy territory in church? Yeah? Are you up for it? Because if you're not, you know, what are we doing here? Are we here just to hear what we want to hear, right? No, we're here because we, we believe that the Word of God will shape and change us every time we come to it. I'm glad to hear you're up for it. I really am. Because this letter, and we're going to continue to work through it over the next number of weeks, it, it hits on some huge things that weren't just, like, issues back then. You know, there's still issues now with us in our hearts. You know, things that sometimes get swept under the rug and not addressed in church circles. Paul doesn't hold back, and neither should we. He talks about, among other things, divisions in the church, sexual integrity and faithfulness, Believers suing one another, dietary laws, idolatry, proper use of spiritual gifts, etiquette for worship gatherings, and the resurrection. Small list. A little bit. Craig Blomberg said, this is like Christian hot potato in this letter. And, you know, we don't want to hold back. We want to let the word speak to us. Amen? So we've got to ask ourselves that important question up front. Is the word of God an authority in our lives? Is it an authority in our lives, not just for, you know, the issues Corinth was facing then, but the issues that we face now, are we coming to it for wisdom to let it shape our lives? And will we trust what God has said, even if it convicts us? Amen? Let's come to the word today with open ears and open hearts. CJ brought up the first great problem Paul writes to, the divisions and the factions brewing within the church. That's never been a problem in church before, right? (laughs) Divisions and factions. You know, this didn't end in the first century. Is there anybody here who's just like shocked that there is like divisiveness in church circles? All right, good. All right. We got our eyes open this morning. Of course not. You know, in the world that we inhabit, it's really common to see people just at each other's throats about like everything. And that happens in the church as well. And Paul's writing to address this, but there's good news. There's good news. Paul doesn't simply just like lay the smack down on them for being a bunch of knuckleheads and being dumb or, you know, for that matter, lay the smack down on us for being a bunch of knuckleheads because we still are. 
You know, he gives them an alternative approach. He reminds them of who they are. He sees, he sees the, the symptoms happening within the church, but he chooses to treat the disease, not just the symptoms. You know, because he believed, and I believe, that God wanted to bring them and still wants to bring us into a beautiful unity together that speaks to the world of his great love. Amen? Amen? So I want to focus today on the unity within the church that God is looking to create through us and in us, because the church is still a diverse group today, right? Paul reminds us that through the ages, from then until now, he reminds us of who we're called to be. He invites us to embrace the messiness of blending lives together for the sake of the gospel with humility and grace, and allow the Spirit to bring us into that unity. Let's open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've been jumping around in the first couple of chapters. We're going to make a little bit of progress today. I want to read to you from chapter 3, verse 5, through to chapter 4, verse 5. Now, as they were arguing about their factions and anointing for themselves, like, I choose this leader, I choose that leader, Paul, Apollos, Paul continues with them and says this. After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the word, the work that the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants, the one who waters work together with the same purpose. Both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we're both God's workers. And you are God's field. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anybody who builds on that foundation, they may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw, but on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward, but if it's burnt up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and he knows they're worthless. So don't boast about following a particular human leader. For everything belongs to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world, or life, or death, or the present, and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who've been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager, he must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about 
anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and reveal them, reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it it shouts to us through the ages. Not about things we can't relate to, but about things that we can relate to far too much. And God, we give you permission to just come and speak to our hearts again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You know, one of the things I've noticed over the course of my adult life, when looking at our entertainment, particularly on TV and stuff, is something that I call the PTI effect. PTI effect. I remember the first time that my family had cable and we got to watch ESPN. And, you know, friends of mine had ESPN and they're big into sports and stuff like that. And they loved watching ESPN. I never had it, but once I had it, I discovered they had this show on there called PTI. Anybody seen PTI on ESPN before? Can we put up a picture? Show you what it looks like. It just has this constant scroll down the right side of topics. Basically what happens is this. Two guys have a whole list of topics they essentially get into an argument over for a set amount of time. And then a, a bell rings and they move on to the next thing that they get to argue over. Or they just keep arguing and ignore the bell, and hence the, the show's name is Pardon the Interruption. Right? So it looks like this, and they work through all these topics. And the time when PTI came out, you know, 20-something years ago, it was brand new. It was a totally different format for a TV show, um, and it became hugely successful, massively successful. And it sparked kind of this whole revolution of shows that look just like it. If any of you guys turn on ESPN, PTI is not the only argument-based show anymore. All the shows are based in argument. It's just a bunch of people yelling at each other, like, all the time. I'm like, you can't possibly disagree that much. Right? At some point, do you ever find consensus? But it, start, it sparked this whole revolution with two people basically showing off what they know, arguing aggressively as a form of entertainment for us. Now, I know that PTI didn't start the idea of debate as entertainment, but they tapped into something 20-something years ago in our human nature. They tapped into this desire inside of every one of us to be right, to know more than others, to show it off and flaunt it, be recognized, praised, for our point of view. And now we have hot take show after hot take show. This type of format is present on news media, politics, everything, you name it. People arguing over dumb things like movies in the same way. Shows like this are everywhere now. And they've only become more aggressive, more in your face. The lack of civility and lack of listening to one another is just astounding, right? Paul saw something very similar happening with the people in the church at Corinth. See, they had this quest to know. We talked about it the last couple weeks. Quest to just know more than anybody, to have this special wisdom and to argue circles around each other. And it got out of control and was starting to just divide the church massively. Paul heard about these symptoms. Somebody came to him and explained this is what's going on. But he knew what the disease really was and he chose to wade into it with this letter. Their quest for personal glory, you know, it wasn't an original thing. If anything, this is the original problem of humanity, right? It goes back to the garden and it hasn't gone away. But we just simply have way more access to the information than they did even in their time, right? So that's probably why it's a little bit more heavy in our time. Anybody else just exhausted by the constant, constant 
angry outburst culture that we live in. It's exhausting. We have so much information, too. It's just like fuel to the fire. We have more access to gurus on every topic than ever before. It can be exhausting. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just rock up and say, all right, do better, you knuckleheads. He doesn't just wash his hand and go, you know what, this church seems to have it right. I'm going to go hang out with them. You guys are done for. Paul chooses to patiently come alongside and point them back to the good news of Jesus. He reminds them you know, who they're called to be together as one body. And we, re- we need to remember this as well. We need to focus again on the shared identity that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. Because first and foremost, Paul reminds them, we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. Amen? It's very easy for us to get sort of myopic and navel gaze and turn all of our attention on my life, my needs, my wants, my desires, my time. That's human nature, is to move towards self-centered goals rather than kingdom-centered goals. That's not what Jesus shows us. Jesus taught in John 15, he's the true vine and we are the branches. We are intimately connected to him and to one another. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Throughout this passage we just read, Paul uses a few different metaphors to talk about the church. He says, you are our field, you are God's building, you are the temple. Throughout this letter he uses some more and he lands in chapter 12 on maybe his favorite metaphor from the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. He says, we are Christ's body and Jesus is the head. Jesus himself is the head of the body. At the outset of this letter, he asked, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's making a point that when we choose to divide like this, we're dividing the body of Christ. And we need to take that very seriously. From the beginning of this letter and all throughout it, Paul puts the emphasis back on Jesus. Reminds us that this isn't my show or your show. Right? This is his body, his temple, his kingdom, his family. Long story short, it's not about us. It's not about us. We're part of something bigger, and Jesus alone deserves the glory. That's the first thing that Paul points out in this passage. And, and to be honest, when we listen to him talking like this, it, you know, it just calls out any self-centeredness that can exist in us so easily. It just pulls out our pride and nails it down. So, what about these leaders that they were self-promoting and arguing over? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and all that. Paul says it's simple. Apollos and I, we're just servants. He says, for that matter, we're all just servants. That's who we are. As part of Christ's body, we're servants. That's who we're called to be. They wanted to put Paul and Peter and Apollos on pedestals. Just hang out here for a second. Pastors on pedestals. That always works out well, right? <laughs> Can we be honest in church today? Like, celebrity pastors, that, that's never been a problem before, right? So if we're honest, there's two sides of that coin. Sometimes there's a leader, a pastor, whatever, who has a desire for that acclaim. And sometimes that same heart that you see in the people at Corinth Paul's writing to appears in the church today. They want to put someone on a pedestal. But here's the reality. It's never one way or the other completely. And 
Every day, we are all called to say, not on my watch. No one here gets the glory except for Jesus. Amen? We are servants. Look at Jesus himself. Remember Jesus in the Gospels. He basically avoided all, any form of public exaltation at all to the point where he was pretty much playing a game of hide and seek with people when they wanted to make him king. He was not interested in public acclaim. And we shouldn't be either. We're servants. It's about his glory, not my glory. Amen? Jesus, the servant king. You know, power in his kingdom works a little differently. Have you noticed when you read the Gospels? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Serving is what Jesus taught us about. In Matthew 23, he says to us, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Serving, selfless love, choosing to love on each other and serve each other, that's his way. That's his idea of greatness. Serving is what he taught us. Serving is what he modeled for us, right? John chapter 13, John says, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love by wrapping a towel around his waist and washing their feet. He showed us how to serve each other. And ultimately, serving is what Jesus expects of every single person that calls on his name. Every believer he expects to embrace this identity. We're servants. We serve each other. We serve the body. That's who we are. In John 15, 12, he says this, this is my commandment. We are part of one vine. This is my commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Serve each other this way. Follow the example I set for you. It's what he taught us. It's what he modeled for us. It's what he expects of us to be servants. And Paul, not just with the church in Corinth, but throughout the whole New Testament, he's urging the New Testament churches to serve and love one another like Jesus all the time. Galatians 5, he writes to the church in Galatia, he says this, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware, beware of destroying one another. He says it's human nature to want to get my way, to form my group, to do all that kind of stuff. Humbly choose to come and just serve one another. Put each other first. Perhaps his clearest reminder of this is when he stresses to the church at Philippi, That following Jesus means to follow his lead in serving others. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2 really quickly. This is the famous poem Paul writes about him. He says this, If there is any encouragement from belonging to Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have that same attitude that Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This is Jesus' way. 
Despite the fact that he was God, he chose to love and serve and to come for us. Did we deserve it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, but he came anyway. And Paul said, we need to be doing that for each other too. We need to be following his lead. The New Testament writers, they continue to exhort us over and over again just to outdo each other with serving one another. See who can bless the most. Go overboard in your love for one another because it's not about us. We're part of something bigger. We're called to be servants. Amen? After all, Paul says, who's Apollos? Who is Paul? We might plant or water the seeds, but God's the one who makes everything grow. God's the one who makes everything beautiful in its time. He's the one who does the hard work, the real work, so he gets the glory. It's not about our acclaim. It's not about our good standing or our reputation or our status. We are called to serve, to be workers. And Paul goes on to say, in the chapter 4, he says, we're accountable for the work that God's entrusted to us. We're accountable for the work that we do. But he says something interesting. He says, we're not accountable to each other in that way. We're not even accountable to our own conscience, our own feelings. Let's let Paul speak to our moment here for just a second. I want to read to you again verses uh, 2 to 4 of chapter 4. It says this, Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager, he must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I am right. I'm going to pause for a second and let that one linger in the air for a minute. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I am right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Paul pinpoints of two very, very important motivations of the heart here. Motivations at the heart of so many of the divisions they had then, so many of the divisions that we have now, inside and outside of the church. Number one is acting for the approval of others. And number two is acting for the approval of our feelings and our conscience. So let me ask you first and foremost, whose opinion matters most to you? Whose approval in your life matters to you? Who validates you? Is there a person who you're like, man, if that person disagrees with me, you know, I'm, I'm going to change and change my position on something in your life. Maybe there's a group of people and you care about what they think. They're the ones who validate you. See, the heart, what was going on in this church in Corinth, they were hungry for status. They were hungry for the approval of others to show how well-rounded, how wise they were. And they divided into groups that had each other's backs. Catch this. Even as they totally compromised the truth of God. The Bible refers to this as the fear of man. Fear of man. That's when we care more about what other people think than we care about what God thinks. Fear of man. We live in a time where this is really prevalent. You know, many people fall into what you might call groupthink, right? Groupthink. I can't think for myself. I'm part of a group. We all agree this is the way to go. That's it. Groupthink. As long as I have a, a tribe of people around me who agrees with me, that means that I must be okay here. It must be okay for me to do this. Or maybe as long as we can shout louder than the other groups, that'll make it okay. 
Come on, can we be honest in church today? You're quiet. I think that means you're thinking, so I'm going to leave it there. Look, we live in a time that's saturated in groupthink. We live in a time where instead of going to the word for ourselves, we just figure, hey, what does that guy say that the word says, right? We, we love groupthink. It's easy. It's cutting corners. It's safe. It's comfortable. Well, these people agree with me. I know I have their support regardless. I could just sin all the way to hell and they'll be like, yeah, man, I got you. So what was going on in Corinth. And here's the reality. We've said it before. Groupthink does not equal Godthink. Groupthink does not equal Godthink. Paul says, you can all have each other's backs on something and it means nothing. It doesn't make it right. That oftentimes that actually leads you into much bigger problems. <laughs> he doesn't stop there. He says this. He says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Let that one land on you for a minute this morning. I mean, does this not speak to our moment? My conscience is clear. I feel good about it. So, I, you know what? Thank you very much for your opinion. My conscience is clear here. Right? Because we live in the time of my truth as well. Where we define what is true and right and good and fruitful and God's will in our lives based on how it feels to us. This is the nature of our world. This is everywhere. It's a ubiquitous attitude in our time. Now listen... Our conscience is a gift from God. Your conscience is a gift from God to you. And like all gifts from God, the enemy of your soul is constantly trying to corrupt and warp it with every single opportunity we give him. God gave you a conscience. But that doesn't mean that you don't have an enemy who's trying to warp that according to all the other junk we put in our minds, right? Paul echoes the words of the Psalms here when he says, you know, Psalmist says, Search me, God, and know my heart. See if anything in me offends you. God, I don't pretend that just because it feels good to me that it's your will. Search me, O God, and know my heart. There's another psalm where the psalmist in Psalm 19 basically says, God, keep me from sins that I commit willingly and also things I just don't realize I'm doing that are wrong. The psalms show us all over the place that there's something about us where if it feels good, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean it's good. Paul echoes the reality here that Jeremiah made known when he said the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? As Craig Blomberg put it, in our radically individualistic, highly democratic society, let your conscience be your guide sounds akin to biblical truth. Verse 4 makes it plain that it is not. Let your conscience be your guide is not something you're going to find in the pages of scripture. You're going to find it saying, your conscience will lie to you sometimes. The only guide you can actually have is what God says. And at the end of the day, all that matters is what he thinks. We're back to the heart of the matter again. Will we let the Lord be the one to judge? What is the authority in my life, my decision making, the way I interact with other people, the way I get into arguments, don't get into arguments? Is it what my group thinks, who's got my back? Is it how I feel about it? I'll tell you what, you could just dress somebody down and eviscerate them in an argument. It'll probably feel great in your prideful self, but that will not be a good thing. Hmm? Can we talk about stuff like this in church? 
I mean, I, I watched the last round of political debates, okay? <laughs> like, we need to know that there, we are called as Christians to walk differently than our world. We are called to live out our lives differently. That doesn't mean we compromise on what is true. That means we make space for each other and love one another towards God's kingdom. Look, every single one of us is somewhere on a spectrum from 100% grace and no truth to 100% truth and no grace. Only Jesus is perfect in that, right? We need the Holy Spirit to be working on us every single day. I have weaknesses all over the place on this one. It is only by the Spirit of God that we grow together in unity. These two mentalities, they're ever-present in all the division we encounter today, whether inside the church, outside the church. These two forms of deciding what makes me feel right are everywhere. But I just want to say to us today, let's be so careful not to just kind of blindly follow a pattern of thinking or a worldview because it sounds good to us or feels right. Okay? Let's not follow in, fall in step with the world because, you know, people tell you that, you know, that's what's true. As Christians, we're called to avoid those two pitfalls and to follow Jesus instead. You see, that impulse to go more with what feels right or what people tells you right, that's way more in line with what Paul goes on to warn Timothy about, right? In the last days, people will abandon the truth and just go after whatever sounds good to them, whatever their itching ears want to hear, right? Not on my watch is what we need to be saying about that one. Not on my watch. No, we hold all things, all attitudes of our own hearts, all you know, arguments made in our culture, we hold all things accountable to the word of God. Every thought, every impulse in your heart and mine, knowing, as Paul says, it is the Lord himself who decides. He's the only one whose opinion counts. I know it's not the going thing in our time to talk about reality of a final judgment. But it's not up for debate. You know, Paul touches on it multiple times here in this passage. There's a reality that exists before us that at the end of the day, all that's going to matter is what God thinks. We need to, be, we need to allow ourselves to remember that. Hmm? That his opinion matters more. You see, when we live with that as our reality, when we live with that, that God is the only one whose opinion matters at the end of the day. That keeps us humble, doesn't it? That keeps us humble. It doesn't matter how I felt. It doesn't matter who said, yeah, man, you do that. You do you, bro. What matters is what God thinks, and that, that keeps me humble. Jesus is the only one who died for the sins of the world. As we work with him, we're just the servants. We're just the servants. He's the one who makes the field grow. He gets the final say on what is good and true for me, and he alone gets the glory. So we're part of something so much bigger than me. We're called to be servants. And finally, Paul, in this passage, he calls us to a diverse unity, a diverse unity. See, throughout the word of God, the unity that we see, God creating amongst people who are very different from each other, it's not the same as uniformity, right? There's unity and then there's uniformity, and they're not the same thing. Paul says in this passage, he says, okay, let's talk about me and Apollos then. You know, we're different. We're not the same people. Paul maybe was a little bit more educated than Peter, but Apollos, man, that guy, could, he could command a room. That guy could talk circles around anybody. Good for him. Bravo. We're different. We have different gifts. 
You know, sometimes Paul and Peter, they were like oil and water if you read the New Testament, right? They had their, their share of disagreements, some really famous disagreements. But here's the interesting thing about what was going on in Corinth. They wanted to put these people on platforms and pedestals and rally around them, but none of these people they're talking about wanted that. Paul and Apollos and Peter, none of them wanted to divide the church, to split into factions. They didn't want that at all. The divisions formed in their names didn't start with them, but from the people's ambitions and self-promotion. And Paul in this passage is basically saying, are you nuts? Are you crazy to think that that's something that we would want? He tells them in verse 16 of chapter 3, he's basically like, if you want to invite the wrath of God in your life, start dividing the church. Like a surefire way to set yourself at odds with the God of the universe is to start making divisions in his church. I'm not saying it, Paul's saying it. He's saying, are you nuts? These leaders, we see, we see ourselves as servants. Jesus is the only one that matters. And by no means would we ever want you to start dividing the church in our name. They recognize that, yeah, we might be different. We might have different gifts. We might look totally different and disagree sometimes. But we were made by God to work together in unity for his glory. They were united around Jesus. They were willing to hear from one another. They were willing to say, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Can we move forward together? None of their differences elevated one in importance over the other. But human nature is to find whoever we like best and promote them and demote anybody else who disagrees, right? Isn't that what we do as human beings? We flock to people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, and then we form the winning team. Amy gets in our way. Look out. I like what Paul reminds the church in verse 21 to 23 of chapter 3. He says, So don't boast about following a particular human leader. Everything, everything belongs to you. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? He doesn't say don't boast about following another a human leader that's going to be a bad path. He just says, look, you're missing the point here. Everything belongs to you. You're missing the point. It's not about picking and choosing. These teachers, they're a gift to you. None of them would want you forming factions in their name. We're all a gift to one another. We're all called to bring our temperaments, our spiritual gifts, our strengths to one another and serve each other so we can grow in unity. And Paul repeatedly writes about this in the New Testament. He calls us to this humble serving of one another with what God has blessed us with and created us to be. You know, we're all different, right? Take a look around the room. You're not going to see two people who are alike. God has given you each such different talents, skills, spiritual gifts, temperaments. And we need each other. Amen? Amen. We're called to bring those things to the church together. Though we're naturally inclined towards uniformity, it's easier for us to make everybody look like us and talk like us, operate us like robots with identical gifts and dispositions. We recognize this in Scripture. The unity of the body of Christ has always been and will always be a unity of diversity. A unity of different people, different shapes and sizes coming together to form one body. It's something we're called to celebrate and to foster at all costs. Championing one another, serving each other. And let's be honest, this flies in the face of everything our world teaches about competing for power, right, and position and influence. So to embrace the call of Scripture 
to love and serve each other in the body in this way is totally foolish, is what Paul says. It's total, total foolishness from the perspective of the world. But this unity of diversity is present everywhere in the Bible. From the Trinity itself to the mystery of two becoming one flesh in marriage to the body of Christ itself. We see this unity of diversity over and over again. Russell Spittler says this. He says, diversity is divine. Division is devilish. Diversity within unity is God's will for the body of believers. Each recognizing his individual contribution and each contributing to the underlying unity. That's who we're called to be. To recognize we're servants. Nobody's on a pedestal here. We serve together for his glory. Amen? I've had the privilege to do a a bit of traveling in my life. And one of the things that I've come to really enjoy, really love as I've gotten to travel around is, is seeing the beauty of churches all over the world. I mean, I love to hear worship services in other tongues. I love to join in praise when I don't know what's even being said, right? I love to see gatherings that look so different from what we're used to. I think it's beautiful in every way. And sometimes I like to just go sit in some of those incredible cathedrals that have been built, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old. I just, I love to sit there. Some of the buildings that the church has made over the years are astounding in their beauty. And all of them are just so unique, fascinating to me. Some are covered in gold and marble and you're like, oh my gosh, these people really, really went for it here. And some of them are just dreary old stone buildings, but everyone is unique. I had the privilege of visiting Notre Dame in Paris years ago before the fire. And, you know, Notre Dame is not covered in gold and marble. It's an older and simpler cathedral, except for the windows. If anybody's been to Notre Dame, you'll know what I'm talking about. The beautiful stained glass windows. Notre Dame is famous, most famous, for its three rose windows, they're called. I want to put up a picture of one of them here, the south rose window. This is the most famous of all the stained glass windows at Notre Dame. It's one of the most famous stained glass windows in the entire world. It's incredible. It was completed in the year 1260. It's 42 feet across with thousands and thousands of pieces of glass fitted together perfectly to tell the story of Christ's triumph for us. That's what that window is. A ton of individual shapes and colors, pieces worked together into one united image. And then the light shines through as the sun sets. And it's just insane. It's just magical. It erupts with beauty against the gray stone of Notre Dame. For me, That is just such a brilliant and beautiful picture of the church that Jesus calls us to be when we are united in spirit. Amen? Amen. Every piece working beautifully to make the whole, the light of God shining through us, bringing hope and beauty in a world that oftentimes can seem pretty dreary and gray. That's who we're called to be. When we put our lives as diverse and unique different backgrounds, different callings, different giftings. As different as we are when we put our lives in the hands of the master artist, there is no telling how beautiful a masterpiece he will create in and through us. Amen? We live in a time where church culture is just filled with denominations, stories of churches splitting, or people just chasing the next hot thing around town. It's hard for us to imagine how beautiful 
the church can be in all her radiance for us. But it's not hard for Jesus. Jesus can imagine the church in all her beauty. In fact, we're told at the end of the age that that will be the delight of his heart. The church will become the bride that he has been looking forward to in all of her radiance and beauty. Jesus, this is his vision, his imagination for the church to walk in unity, to shape us in unity by his spirit with that moment ever in mind. And I want to hasten that day with everything within me, amen? Where we get to be united with him forever. True unity in the church, it's born out of coming under his authority, his vision for his church, first and foremost. True unity is created by following his lead as a servant, laying down our right to self-promotion and self-actualization along the way. It's found in bringing our whole selves, diverse as he created us to be, into the body to become one. And that requires something of us, doesn't it? It requires us to lay down some of the same habits that we see in Corinth. The habit of, you know, seeking the approval of others instead of seeking God's approval. We need to lay that down. The habit of, you know, seeking after our own interests instead of others. We need to learn to put no person and no ideology on a pedestal other than Jesus. Amen? We build our lives on the word of God and the ways of God, his kingdom first. So let me ask you today, what will we do? What will we do? Because this vision that Jesus has of the church in unity is so beautiful, but it's, it costs, it's costly to see it walked out, isn't it? It requires a rugged commitment to one another. Not something that blows in the wind or when something in our world comes up that we just disagree about, that that becomes a reason to split, a reason to walk away from each other. It's a countercultural vision today, at least as much as it was then, right? What are we going to do? We've got to remember, when Jesus asked us to contradict the culture around us, to step out of line with the ways of our world, he makes us a promise to go along with it. He says that he will make it possible for us to walk in this kind of unity because he will be with us every step of the way. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. It's not by might, not by power, but by his spirit alone, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. By his spirit, he shapes our hearts. He softens our hearts. So we're full of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience with one another, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. By his spirit, he gives us gifts that we're meant to put in play for one another. Gifts to build us up and equip us together for every moment we will face as we walk in unity. Our job is simply to trust him and obey and commit ourselves to simply discovering what does it mean for me today to be part of the body of Christ. What does today look like for me as part of the body of Christ? So let me ask you, what is God speaking to you in this moment? What does it look like for you today to be part of the body? I want to invite you to embrace three things. Three things that Paul has been drawing out over the last few weeks. 
And they seem a little counterintuitive, so bear with me. First and foremost, I want to invite you to embrace the foolishness. Embrace the foolishness. Once more, verse 18 of chapter 3 says this, Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standard, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. Embrace the foolishness. See, we live in an age of just unprecedented access to information, but precious little wisdom, right? We see it everywhere. And we need to remember there is only one truth, one truth that we can build our lives upon that's not like shifting sands. In chapter 1, Paul had said to the same people, he said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. The good news of Jesus Christ. It may sound foolish to someone who doesn't want to accept that, but we know this is the only foundation we can build our lives upon. And we need to embrace that with all of our hearts. So know in advance, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to walk it out his ways, it's not going to win you any popularity contests in your world or on your street or at your workplace. Okay? We need to know that. We need to take account of that. Jesus said, count the cost before you come and follow me, right? So if our goal is to be popular with everybody in the world, we're not going to embrace the fullness of what Jesus wants for us. Jesus said it's the narrow path that leads to life. And the popular path leads to destruction. Paul says we need to ask whose wisdom matters more to us. Let's take inventory today with a simple question. Am I okay with being thought of as a fool? It's a hard question, right? Am I okay with being thought of as like, that guy's nuts. He's foolish. My prayer and my hope is that God gives every single one of us a heart like we see in King David when he's coming on the scene and he's dancing with all his might and all the people are like, what has gotten into that guy, right? And what does he say in that moment? He says, if it brings honor to God, I will become even more undignified than this. It doesn't matter to me what you think. What matters to me is what he thinks. That's what matters. I will be more undignified in my own eyes and in the eyes of others, he says. David knew how to embrace the foolishness that Paul calls the power of God. Let's allow the word to raise this question in us. And there's going to be times probably this week where you're going to have a moment where you could be looked at kind of funny. Let's ask ourselves whose opinion matters most in that moment. Amen? Let's embrace the foolishness again. Who cares what other think, others think? Let's let God be glorified. Second thing, I want to invite you to embrace obscurity. Obscurity. Paul said, it doesn't matter who plants or who waters. God is responsible for the good things that come to fruition, and God gets the glory. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's about him. Our world is obsessed with what everybody else thinks, right? And it gives every one of us a doctorate in how to self-promote. That's what social media is all about. That's why we have it, right? How to be the hero of our own story. But here's the reality of the word of God. There is only one hero in every one of our stories. There is only one hero in every story represented in this room and in our story collectively together, and that is Jesus. So it's okay for us not to be the hero. It's okay for us not to have the spotlight every moment. That keeps our pride in check, doesn't it? Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He said, learn to lead quiet lives. Do the work God's called you to, and don't look for man's approval. 
So let's ask the Lord to point out any, any places in my life where I'm just craving the spotlight, where I'm trying, I'm looking, doing anything for the acclaim and the approval of others. And let's put him back in the spotlight of our lives. Amen. A while back, I came across a, a nonprofit group called I Am Second. I was telling the fathers about it this morning. I Am Second. I encourage you to look it up. I think it's just IamSecond.com. It's pretty easy. Um, I Am Second. I love the underlying vision of this nonprofit group. They sit down and they have people tell their story. Story about how they tried to put themselves first, their career first, their, their vision for life first in their lives, and it left them empty. And then they realized that they needed to put Jesus first in their life and others first in their life. And they needed to be willing to be second. And when they did that, they found life and peace. If you go on their websites, one of the big mantras that's plastered is that we're all trained to idolize ourselves. That's what we're indoctrinated in by our culture. But we don't really experience the fullness of life that Jesus wants us to until we put him first. Until we let him be the hero of the story until we're willing to embrace more obscurity in our lives. So I invite you to check that website out. From pro baseball players to TV stars to rappers, you're probably going to recognize somebody on their list of stories, and they're very moving. But it's just good to remind ourselves that Jesus is number one. Amen? It's good to be willing to embrace a little bit of obscurity, to be backstage when our world is trying to say, no, you've got to have the spotlight on you 24-7. Embrace obscurity. Embrace the foolishness, and finally, embrace the call to serve. Embrace the call to serve. Paul says, this is who we are. This is what builds up the church. If our lives are hidden in Christ, the servant king, then we are to serve one another with gladness. So the question we ask ourselves is, what am I doing on behalf of others that really doesn't benefit me in any way? What am I doing for others that doesn't benefit me? You know, this doesn't have to be serving in church, Although this is a good place to start, if you're part of this expression of God's church, and Lord knows we need all hands on deck, shameless plug here for a minute, we are looking for help to help raise up the next generation. No amens to that one. Okay, I am sorry. We're going to come back, and we're going to revisit that one hard later, okay? We're looking for people to help us raise up a generation that's passionate for Jesus. Okay, there we go. Thank God. Whew. It's about to walk off this stage. We're looking for musicians, talented musicians, so CJ stops offering his services. I'm sorry, I'm picking on him. He's, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> and we're going to be hopefully like totally gutting our Century Home Office building at some point. So if you're like the next Chip and Joanna Gaines, like come hit me up, right? We need people to help us with these things. We only have a small staff, right? There is a massive season of outreach ahead, more important than anything which I am so excited for. We get to touch our community with the love of Jesus. What's holding us back? Come on, people, sign up. Let's go serve the poor, the needy together. Amen? There are plenty of opportunities. There are opportunities everywhere if you're looking to love on people in the ways of Jesus. And serving one another, it's not optional for Jesus followers. The question is how? And seriously, Every time we, we do a membership class, I am just so blown away by the people that God brings together in this tribe. Their unique stories, their unique skills, their passions, their heart. It's incredible. We are like that stained glass window. And I am so thrilled. We have different gifts, abilities, hearts, personalities, but this is one body, a body full of people lovingly serving each other. Amen?
The classic 80-20 rule of church, you know, where 20% of people do 80% of all the work, all 80% of the giving, the loving, the serving, you know, that has never been true of Word of Grace. And I am so thankful. I pray it never will be true of Word of Grace. So embrace foolishness, embrace obscurity, and embrace service. Come grab me, come grab CJ if you're saying, you know what, I want to get involved somehow. We, we got more opportunities than we have people. So come find us, don't hesitate. Because the enemy would far rather that we focus on being in the spotlight, that we focus on finding what everybody else thinks is the right path, and that we focus on ourselves instead of others, Right? The flourishing church, the vision Jesus has of his church is found in a group of people who are ruggedly committed to one another, to loving one another the way that he loved us. Not because we deserved it, but because he's good and because his spirit motivates us in the same way. Amen? We're going to pray in just a moment and invite the worship team to come join up again. And really before we pray, I want to invite you just to stand with me. I'll invite you to stand with me for just a second. You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been digging into 1 Corinthians, and essentially, this first big hurdle that Paul's trying to jump with these people is very simply the same hurdles that we face so often in church. You know, seeking what's popular, falling back on, hey, a couple of people got my back, and so it doesn't matter, you know, I'm going I'm to let that be what's guiding me, or my conscience. But I want to call us again to simply come to Jesus with open hands today. You can turn your palms upward if you want. And just have this posture and saying, God, this is my life and it belongs to you. It belongs to you. I choose to walk your ways and not my own. I know that it's not going to win me any popularity contest, but God, your opinion matters more to me than anyone else's. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and then we're going to worship. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you came for us the way that you taught us to serve, the way that you modeled for us how to love one another, the way that you call us to be your hands and feet. And God, you wouldn't call us to this knowing that it's not our our human nature and it's not popular. You wouldn't call us to this unless you promise you're going to be with us. We know if we want to walk this out, there's going to be uncomfortable moments. There's going to be moments we rub each other the wrong way, just like Paul and Peter. But God, we ruggedly commit ourselves today to your vision for the church. We pray that you would give us a fresh vision of all the church can be in all her beauty. That that would capture our hearts and our imaginations. And that that would capture our will. That we would work for that vision, Jesus. Your bride in beautiful unity, ready to stand before you for all time. Lord, we pray you'd help us to ask that simple question. What does it mean for me today to be part of the body of Christ? And then, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Because we know if we honestly ask that question, that by your spirit, you will answer. We pray that we would get quiet enough, that we would devote the time to listening to what you say. What are you asking of me, God? God, I pray that no matter what you ask, the answer would always be yes, before the question even leaves your lips because of who's doing the asking. God, if you're asking, my answer is yes. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to be so committed to the unity of this body and just the body of the church around our city, around our world. We thank you for what you're doing in your church. 
Would you speed all the beautiful things that you're looking to bring into fruition in the church, Lord? Help the church to rise up and be that body. Help us to join hands, even though we have differences and disagreements, Lord. Bring us into unity by your spirit again. We want to see it, Lord. We want to see it, and we trust you for it. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've been here with us. We pray that this word would continue to work on us. And we trust you that you're going to continue to walk with us. Shape us, Lord. Grow us to look more like you every single day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.